Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This podcast contains descriptions of death and violence that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello, Jack. How are you at the moment? Very well, thanks, Simon. Uh, busy spinning a few plates. What about you? What have you been up to? Oh, you know, bit of this, bit of that. Ducking and diving, bobbing and weaving. Some good feedback for the uh, Valentine's Day murder piece. I think these uh, old village murders seem to grab people's attention, don't you? Especially with those... Big hitting Scotland Yard detectives descending on the place. Yeah, especially when they return to London without finding a killer. <laughs> yeah, there is that as well. Big city senior detectives, they might bring some experience, but not necessarily, what would you say, the determination to finish the job. Maybe they had one eye on retirement and writing those, uh, those lucrative memoirs. What case are we looking at today, Simon? Well, today, Jack, we're moving into the realm of a London serial killer who was never caught. Here's your briefing document. Ah, the swinging 60s. So we've gone from 1940s war-weary village to the hedonism of 1960s post-war London. That's about the size of it, mate, and this one has a real twist at the end, bringing things right up to date, linking it into a case right back in the 1920s. So there's some time travel involved in this. And guess what? You could even throw in your favourite Scotland Yard team getting involved. Great. Now, let's see. The Hammersmith Nude Murders was a series of six murders in London, England, in 1964 and 1965. The victims, all prostitutes, were found undressed in or near the River Thames, leading to the press giving the nickname to the killer, Jack the Stripper, a reference to Jack the Ripper. Two earlier murders committed in 1959 and 1963 have also been linked by some investigators to the same perpetrator. Despite intense media interest and one of the biggest manhunts in Scotland Yard's history, the case is unsolved. All forensic evidence gathered at the time is reported to have been destroyed or lost. Yep, that's about the size of it. It's probably worth me giving you the names of the eight women as well and of course we never forget that in all of these cases these are real people who were deeply affected by these cases all eight women had their own hopes and dreams family and friends some of them obviously still alive so we do respect that i guess many of them were from other parts of the country their, their parents probably didn't even know that they drifted into prostitution yeah exactly well none of the families ever had closure on who killed their relative or why, and their names were Elizabeth Figg, Gwyneth Rees, Hannah Tailford, 
Irene Lockwood, Helen Barthelemy, Mary Fleming, Francis Brown and Bridget O'Hara. On the 17th of June 1959, aged 21, the body of Elizabeth Figg was discovered at Duke's Meadow in Chiswick in West London. She had been strangled. Her body was found at 5.10am by police officers on routine patrol in the park on the north bank of the River Thames. Funnily enough, this is my old stamping ground from a few years ago, so I do know the locations. The park had a reputation as a lover's lane and prostitutes were known to take their clients there. Fig's body was found on Scrubland between Dan Mason Drive and the river's towpath. That's about 200 yards west of Barnes Bridge. Her dress was torn at the waist and opened to reveal her breasts and her underwear and her shoes were missing. The pathologist concluded that she died between midnight and 2am the following morning. Extensive searches failed to find her underwear, black stiletto shoes or her white handbag. Now, a police official theorised that she'd been murdered by a client in his car after removing her shoes and underwear, and that these and her handbag had then remained in the car after the body was disposed of at Duke's Meadow. The proprietor of a pub on the opposite side of the river to where Fig was found said that on the night of the murder, he and his wife had seen a car's headlights as it parked in that area around five past midnight. Shortly afterwards, the lights were switched off, and that was when they heard a woman scream. I know this area too. In fact, I recently mm. walked along the path by the Thames. I think it was from Kew Bridge uh, along to the Fuller's Brewery at Chiswick. There's pubs every mile or so along there, plus parks and sports pitches. It's an affluent part of West London, particularly on the south of the river. There's also Brentford nearby, probably less affluent with more industry, but... I remember the River Brent is also the start of the Grand Union Canal that links London and the Midlands. Yeah, that's about the size of it. Of course, there's been quite a lot of gentrification in that area now. In the 1960s, I think it was a, a very different kettle of fish. And there were still bomb sites there, for instance. You know, the area had a very different reputation. Which leads us on to the next case, which was four years later. So did they get anywhere with this case from 1959? Well, no, apparently not. Um, we'll talk about suspects later on. But do you want to um, jump forward and do the next case? I think it's um, 1963, the year that Kennedy was shot. Yeah, 29th September 1963, 22-year-old prostitute named of Gwyneth Rees reported missing. On the 8th of November, sometime later, her body was found at a household refuse site on Townmead Road, Mortlake, 40 yards from the Thames towpath, and approximately one mile from where Elizabeth Figg's body was found four years earlier. Rhys was naked except for a single stocking on her right leg. Oh dear, her decomposed body was, was decapitated by the council workmen before they realised what was in the refuse that they were levelling. So her actual cause of death was never established okay so right, this is on the other side of the river at over bridge so at this point there's two separate murder inquiries and they're four years apart you've got it 1959 then 1963 and then on the 2nd of february 1964 the body of hannah tailford was found on the thames foreshore west of hammersmith bridge 
and below Linden House. That's the clubhouse of the London Corinthian Sailing Club. And it's a very exclusive area these days, back in the day, probably less so. She'd been strangled and several of her teeth were missing. Odd that. Her underwear had been forced down her throat as well, so kind of a weird scene that greeted police. And then on the 8th of April 1964, the body of Irene Lockwood was found on the foreshore of the Thames at Corny Reach in Chiswick. That's not far from where Tailford had been found. OK, with the discovery of the third victim, the police realised that a serial murderer was at large. Now, Miss Lockwood was 25 years old and she was pregnant at the time of her death. Right, so her child would be in their 50s now, had he or she been born. Yeah, it's a sobering thought, isn't it, really? Because that little boy or little girl would have been of our generation. So it does make you think, doesn't it? And as I said earlier, we do contemplate the fact that these are real people we're talking about. They're not just statistics. Well, on the 24th of April 1964, here's another one. Helen Bartholomew. She was found dead in an alleyway at the rear of Boston Manor Road in Brentford. Helen was 22 years old, she'd been strangled, and her death gave investigators their first solid piece of evidence in the case, flecks of paint used in car manufacturing. Police felt that the paint had probably come from the killer's workplace and they focused on identifying business premises in the area. Then the murder team was diverted for a time after a man actually confessed to the Lockwood murder. What was all that about? Three days after the uh, Bartholomew murder, there's a guy called Kenneth Archibald, 57-year-old caretaker from the Holland Park Lawn Tennis Club. And he walks into Notting Hill Police Station and voluntarily confesses to the killing of Irene Lockwood. But there's little corroboration to his confession. However, Archibald was charged with the murder. At the start of his trial in June, a couple of months later, he retracted his confession and pleaded not guilty. And he was formally found not guilty by a jury and acquitted. He claimed that he was depressed and under stress over theft charges that he was facing. Now, that was a probably more of a problem back then, I guess, charging people on the strength of confessions that they, the police, suspected to be false. I mean, nowadays and in my time, that wouldn't get past first post, you know? The, uh, yeah. even, D even DNA evidence requires some corroboration, and this would have... This issue with Archibald and his confession, it would have caused unnecessary work for the detectives on the case, and it would have been an unwelcome distraction. So they might have lost, what, weeks, months, the hunt for the serial killer, trail might have gone cold, is that what you're saying, Jack? Yeah, I mean, they've certainly lost weeks, haven't they? It's, it's, it's not so much the trail's gone cold, but the, the, the impetus of the investigation um, may, maybe have been distracted. Well, looking at the file here, the trail didn't go cold for very long. Not long after the false confession trial, on the 11th of July 1964, Mary Fleming went missing. Her body was found three days later, on the morning of the 14th of July. Now, this time, the body had been dumped on a residential street in Chiswick, in full view of all of the people who lived there. And she'd been strangled 
Once again, there were paint spots found on her body, and residents reported hearing a car reversing down the street just before the body was discovered. Oh, and that dental thing again. Mary Fleming wore dentures, and her dentures were missing. Interestingly, a van had been seen earlier. It had driven off in a hurry from near to a restaurant in Chiswick. The premises actually had decorators working on site through the night, and it was believed that whoever was in the van was disturbed, not expecting people to be on the premises. OK, any more description of the van? Oh, if only. Uh, not enough to identify it, or so it seems. The police were clearly under pressure now, right? They tried new tactics. They offered an amnesty for prostitutes, or, well, we might call them sex workers, I suppose, and they deployed undercover policewomen to try and glean information. As an investigator, I would want to know how they operated and where they operated. Did they have similar appearance? Did they have a similar method of finding clients? Did they offer the same niche services? Were they even living in the same area or travelling in together? All right, hold your horses, we'll come on to that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the deaths continue. I feel like the voice of doom at this point. <laughs> on the 25th of October 1964, Frances Brown was seen by a colleague. She saw her get into a client's car. A month later, on the 25th of November, Frances' body was found in a car park in Kensington and she'd been strangled. The colleague was able to provide police with an identikit picture of the person in the car and a description of the car thought to be a grey Ford Zephyr. Interestingly, Brown had also been a defence witness at the high-profile trial of Stephen Ward back in July 64, which if you know about the Profumo affair, you'll um, understand that this was a trial that involved Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis as co-witnesses. In January 65, the last of the series of murders occurred. On the 11th of January, Bridget O'Hara went missing. Her body was found over a month later on the 16th of February, this time near a storage shed behind the Heron Trading Estate in Acton. Once again, O'Hara's body turned up flecks of industrial paint, which were traced to an electrical transformer near where her body was discovered. And her body also showed signs of having been stored in a warm environment. So the transformer was a good fit for both the paint and for the heating. Remember, it's February, it's going to be chilly outside. Wow, this person, he's killing for the sake of it, isn't he? I mean, in most cases, the offender, he's just dumped these bodies in public places. It, it's almost like he's fly-tipping a worthless piece of garbage. None of these women were obviously sexually assaulted. There was no mutilation or injuries from sexual penetration. They were just strangled and stripped naked. Yeah, they were strangled, they were stripped, and some of them also had their teeth removed, whether they were actual biological teeth, their own teeth, or false teeth, dentures. So, from this short summary, there's a few obvious areas that the detectives would have worked on. Were there other prostitute murders elsewhere in the country? I guess not, otherwise they would have been included in, in the report we've got. So this suggests that the killer may have been based in the area and not travelling around the country for his work, etc. That said, was the killer using them for sex? 
or was he targeting them by the nature of their work? We, you know, we all accept that prostitutes are easy targets. They take risks because they go with unknown men. Now, these killings started, what, in 1959, wasn't it? I think that was the year of the Street Offences Act, which made soliciting for the purpose of prostitution an offence. Mm -hmm. The prevalence of street prostitution was clearly a hot topic for the government at the time. These women were treated as criminals then. The legislation that came in would have been an, an attempt to move prostitution off the streets. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. To hide this I suppose morally offensive behavior behind closed doors so just thinking out loud here what what details link these women did they solicit in the same area did they know each other we now have officially recognized organizations that support uh, women involved in prostitution did outreach workers operate then i don't know either way these women would have protected each other as best they could you know, they would warn each other of clients who had odd characteristics. Prostitutes get asked to perform all kinds of unusual sexual services. And maybe when these women refused to do a certain act, they would, without doubt, discuss it between themselves. They would warn each other about dodgy punters, wouldn't they? Mm. Let's assume that the killer intended to kill on each occasion. There must have been surely other occasions when something went wrong where something happened that meant that the woman was allowed to go and get away there must have been occasions when the killer approached other women there may have been women who managed to fight him off now that's the biggest opportunity to glean vital intelligence by speaking to these known prostitutes right well the police did offer an amnesty to prostitutes to come forward and give information and they also had undercover officers on the streets posing as prostitutes, and they were wearing wires, tape recorders. But that all suggests that they did not normally speak to the police. Maybe there was a lack of trust in those days. These attitudes have changed now. Um, the other detail that stands out is the use of a vehicle by the killer. Now, vehicle ownership was much less in those days. I think even vehicles were registered with the local council. The Swansea DVLA that we accept, uh, that came later. So what intelligence was gleaned about cars that became of interest? The Zephyr car and the van. 
Well, yeah, I mentioned that the record keeping was lacking, um, and the record confirms that. So my inference from that is that things were missed. Although the Ford Zephyr was a popular car at the time, and it wasn't a cheap car either. It was a powerful car. So this was, I suppose, the equivalent of, say, a 3 Series BMW in those days. You know, it was popular, and it had some status, and it was a powerful car. The police used them, for instance. That's interesting. So each of these murders, as, as they came in, they would have to be taken in isolation, regardless of the similarities. You know, we are looking at them now as a... Uh, a group of crime, a series of crimes committed by probably the same person. But at the time, the movements of the victim would need to be established. And house-to-house -house inquiries would be a standard part of those investigations. And these would take place at the location of where the body was found and also around their home address or where they had last been seen. And each case would need to consider whether a partner or family member was responsible. Now, house-to-house -house inquiries, I don't know if you're aware of this, Simon, it's not just about knocking on a door and saying, did you see anything or do you know anything? When these are done properly, they build up a lot of information. Mm. They also ask about neighbours, and that's crucial in cases like this. Uh, for instance, Mrs Smith may say truthfully, she lives alone and she doesn't have a car. Mrs Smith's neighbour, when asked about who lives next door, may say, oh, it's Mrs Smith. But a man called Jim comes over at weekends and he drives a grey Zephyr car. So I would expect the house-to-house -house on these investigations to be very thorough. They were a vital line of inquiry in those days. There was no CCTV to control. No mobile phone masts that recorded who was in the area. No GPS locations to go on. The question is, is how well was that information analysed? Is the killer or the killer's car mentioned in those original documents just waiting to be found? Well, very good point. From what information we have available, Chief Superintendent John Durose of Scotland Yard was put in charge of the case. His team interviewed... 120,000 people, 300,000 vehicles were collated, and almost 7,000 suspects were interviewed. That's a long list, right? In the spring of 1965, the investigation into the murders encountered a major breakthrough. A sample of paint that was recovered from several of the victims. The same paint was found beneath an electrical transformer at the rear of a building on the Heron Factory Estate in Acton. The factory estate faced a paint spraying shop. Shortly thereafter, Durose held a news conference where he boasted that they'd narrowed the suspect pool down from 7,000 to 20 men and by a process of elimination, these suspects were being ruled out from the investigation. After a short time, he announced that the suspect pool contained only ten members, and then only three members. There were no further known stripper killings following his initial news conference. So it sounds like he was desperate to get a result, and who can blame him? I suppose once the killing stopped, the pressure was reduced, 
and possibly the enthusiasm to get to the bottom of it. Well, it looks like the media and various writers kept the story going. Lots of articles were being published about the case. In one, it was reported that Hannah Tailford and Francis Brown were peripherally connected to the 1963 Profumo affair. You remember I mentioned that earlier on. Well, some victims were also known to engage in the underground party scene in addition to appearing in porno movies. Several writers have postulated that the victims may well have known each other and that the killer may have been connected to this underground blue movie orgy scene as well. It clearly got people speculating about the wealthy and the powerful. This underground party scene sounds more erotic and exciting than servicing an unhappy man in a car park, if you, if you get what I mean. <laughs> it's going to uh, sell papers, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. You can imagine all the talk about it in the pubs and clubs over a pint of Fuller's London Pride, but, hey, why let the truth spoil a good story? So... These suspects, who were the main suspects? Well, a few have been reported on. A man with the unusual name of Mungo Island was Chief Superintendent de Rose's most likely suspect. Mungo Island was a security guard at the industrial estate where Bridget O'Hara's body was found. By the time de Rose first identified him, which happened to be in an interview with the BBC in 1970, Mungo Island was dead. Shortly after the police started investigating him in 1965, he took his own life by carbon monoxide poisoning. He left his wife a note that read, I can't stick it any longer. To save you and the police looking for me, I'll be in the garage. Well, whilst seen by many as a strong suspect in the killings, recent research suggests that Ireland was in Scotland when O'Hara was murdered, therefore couldn't have been the killer. Right. I wonder how much he could be linked to the other cases, if, if at all. I suppose someone working in a solitary occupation at night has opportunities to get up to no good. But this Chief Superintendent Duros then, and the BBC interview five years later, that wouldn't have coincided with his memoirs being published, would it? A bit like the Valentine's Day murder case we looked at last time. What is about coppers being cynical? Uh, you're right, though, mate. It would appear so, yes. Durose was only brought into the case in 1965 after the O'Hara murder. The press had nicknamed him Four Day Johnny because he had this reputation for solving cases within four days. I mean, no wonder he claimed that Paul Mungo Island probably did it. It saved his reputation to claim that he would have solved the case if the selfish killer had not topped himself. Well, yeah, Mungo Island wasn't there to either defend himself or indeed to contradict Chief Inspector Du Rose. The fact is, though, there were no more killings, right? A former flying squad officer, a guy called Dick Kirby, wrote a book about the case. In it, he says, with hindsight, I'm not surprised the killer wasn't caught. After Du Rose started his operations, there were no more killings, either because the murderer was scared off, had left the country, was in prison or was dead. You know, this reminds me of so much of a case that I worked on. It was a 25-year-old unsolved rape and murder. And we asked ourselves the same question. Why did he stop? Was he dead? Was he in prison? Had he left the country? And, you know, when we mm. solved that case, we were shocked that the killer was still living in the same area. Not only had he not offended again, he'd married, he'd raised a family, he even managed a bit of charity work in his spare time. 
So these kind of fenders, are, they're a rare kind of person. They can stop when they want to. You could ask a similar question of Jack the Stripper. Why did he start in the first place? Hey, let's mention Freddie Mills. In 2001, a reformed gangster named Jimmy Tippett Jr. said that during research for his book about London's gangland, he'd uncovered information suggesting that British light heavyweight boxing champion Freddie Mills was responsible for the murders. Tippett said, quote, I've spoken to famous figures in the underworld and senior police offices in Scotland Yard, and I'm convinced Freddie Mills was the killer. Contrary to his public image, Mills was a sexually warped sadist who enjoyed inflicting pain, end quote. According to Tippett, Cray-era gangsters including Charlie Richardson and Frankie Fraser had long suspected Mills of being the murderer. Mills had previously been linked to the murders by Peter Neal, a freelance journalist. Neal told police in July 1972 that he'd received information in confidence from a serving chief inspector that Mills, quote, killed the nude prostitutes, unquote. He also said that this was, quote, common knowledge in the West End. Many people would say, oh, Freddie did him in. Hmm. In July 1965, Mills was found shot dead in his car. Apparently, that was suicide. Apparently, Freddie Mills' car was seen on several occasions in the vice areas too. I'm assuming here that he was not suggested as a suspect until after he took his own life. I mean, unless the team seriously investigated him after his death, this sounds like more like classic London rumours and sensational reporting rather than having any value. Well, the suggestion that Freddie was the Hammersmith nudes murderer originated with gangster Frankie Fraser, who told it to policeman Bob Berry, who told it to the Sun crime reporter Michael Litchfield. You're still with me on this, aren't you, right? <laughs> okay. Fraser claimed that Freddie Mills' involvement was discussed with Chief Superintendent DuRose, but when DuRose published his autobiography, there was no mention of Freddie Mills with regard to this case. Peter McGuinness put the allegations to the investigating officer, who stated that Freddie Mills had never been a suspect during the investigation. Well, I think we can leave that there, don't you? I mean, you've mentioned the Sun newspaper, gangsters speaking to the police, who then speak to the tabloid press. This sounds more like a story of value to the Leveson inquiry than us. I think so, and personally speaking, I was just getting tangled up with all of the names and all of the pronouns, so yes, I, I'm, I'm pleased to back away from that one. But, you know, police and press corruption, or maybe collusion, use another word, goes back a long way. You know, there was also talk of the killer being a metropolitan police officer named Tommy Butler. David Seabrook, he wrote a book called Jack of Jumps in 2006, and he said that a former Metropolitan Police detective was a suspect in the opinion of several senior detectives investigating the case. Owen Summers, a journalist for the Sun newspaper, had previously raised suspicion about the unnamed officer's involvement in a series of articles published by the newspaper in 1972. And Daily Mirror journalist Brian McConnell followed a similar line of inquiry in his book Found Naked and Dead in 1974. He was also considered by Dick Kirby, former Metropolitan Police detective, in his book Laid Bare, The Nude Murders and the Hunt for Jack the Stripper, 2016, in which Kirby referred to him only as, quote, the cop. 
In another book, The Survivor, published in 2002, the alleged culprit was Superintendent Tommy Butler of the Metropolitan Police's Flying Squad. Butler was retired as a police officer, but died in 1970 at the age of 57. Of course. Tommy, but yeah, Tommy Butler. He was the man in charge of the great train robbery investigation, blimey. Mm-hmm. Once you've left this mortal, mortal coil in London, they seem to queue up and point the finger at you, don't they? Did, uh, did Butler <laughs> conveniently take his own life? <laughs> conveniently? God, no. Uh, much less sensational. He died after a long battle with lung cancer. OK, well, I think maybe we should let him rest. Oh, definitely, I think so. In fact, I think it's time to introduce the name Harold Jones into this discourse. This man was a nasty, nay, sadistic piece of work. A convicted double child killer. That sounds bad enough, doesn't it? But the details of his earlier crimes are frankly distressing. He wasn't a suspect, though, during the Jack the Stripper case. OK, this is the case you mentioned right at the start that's been linked to our case more recently. Yeah, that's right. And this story starts a long way from 1960s London, rather in the 1920s in a small colliery town in the Welsh Valleys. Abertilly was a close-knit and God-fearing community where everybody knew each other And, of course, they felt safe, you know, the kind of place where you leave your front door open the whole time. In 1921, when he was 15 years old, he was charged with the murder of an eight-year-old girl named Frida Burnell. He was acquitted due to lack of physical evidence, and then, 17 days later, he murdered again. This time, his victim was an 11-year-old, who was still accusing him of murdering her friend Frida. There have been several books and documentaries about this case, In order for you to understand how disturbed and calculating Harold Jones was, just let me summarise it for you. Harold Jones was described as an ordinary child, smart in appearance, who socialised with the other children. After finishing school, he got a job at an animal feed shop in Abertilly. On the day of the murder, he was alone in the shop when eight-year-old Frida came in. She'd been sent on an errand for her father, and one of the items that she wanted was in the storage premises nearby. So Jones suggested that Frida goes with him into the store. Once inside, he sexually assaulted her and then beat her about the head with a pickaxe handle. Leaving her for dead, he returns to the shop as though nothing's happened. The girl's father begins to worry and goes to the shop where Jones calmly says that she's been in the shop, but she left. The girl is now reported missing and the search is on. When Jones finishes work, he returns to the store shed, puts Frida's body in a sack and carries it a short distance before dumping it in a nearby alleyway. Jones then continues his pretense by visiting the girl's house and asks if they found her yet. He's clearly enjoying this game that he's playing. The following morning, a miner on his way to the colliery finds Sheila's body in the alleyway. Well, the town was in shock. The police were called in from London. The locals believed that the person responsible must be an outsider. No one in Abertilly would surely do such a terrible thing. Jones behaves normally and even gives evidence at the inquest. Wow, so this is a 15-year-old playing to the crowd, enjoying his moment. And the police, meanwhile, begin to search the outbuildings. 
and they checked the storage premises belonging to the shop where Jones had worked. The bloodstained pickaxe handle and Frida's handkerchief identify it as the scene of her death. Suspicion now falls on young Harold Jones. He maintains that he's innocent, but he's charged with it to the disbelief of the local people. At his trial, the locals are only too keen to vouch for his character. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Even the shopkeeper who employed him gave evidence that Jones was in the shop all the time. Jones was naturally found not guilty by this support from the people around him. And he even came home to a hero's welcome. I mean, many people in the town refused to accept that one of their own was a child murderer. And this included Mr. Little, who lived a few doors down from the Jones family. But Mr. Little's daughter Florence thought differently. She even taunted Harold Jones about it. One day, when Harold was home on his own, he invited Florence Little into his house. Harold didn't really take kindly to having an 11-year-old girl going around the place calling him a murderer. So he cut her throat and held her over the sink so that the blood flowed down the pipe and didn't make a mess on the floor. Once Florence was dead, he tied a rope around her and hauled her up into the attic and then cleaned up the mess downstairs. Harold Jones then acted like a concerned neighbour, helping in the frantic search for another missing girl. This young man is enjoying this, isn't he? Yeah, it would seem to be the case, but this time the police were quick to focus their efforts and they checked inside the Jones house. They saw evidence of surfaces that were cleaner than others. They looked in the attic and discovered that a sadistic murderer had struck again. Harold Jones's father handed him into the police. This time, Harold was in the mood to confess his crime. He was also willing to confess to the murder of Frieda too. He was still playing his game with the people of Abertilly. He was twisting the knife into the people who'd supported him and had protested his innocence, especially the jury, who'd acquitted this innocent-looking 15-year-old. On November the 1st, 1921, Harold Jones won another battle in the court. He pleaded guilty to both murders, knowing that he would not hang for those crimes. He was still not 16 years old and was sentenced to life imprisonment instead. He was released after 20 years due to the influence of the Commissioner for Prisons, Alec Patterson. Patterson seemed to think that Jones was not a danger and could serve and help out in the war in 1941. The prison governor did not approve of his release, but Jones was released from Wandsworth Prison in London, 1941. Wandsworth Prison, it's on the bus route to Hammersmith. From here, it's probably worth skipping forward to 2008, when a book titled Every Mother's Nightmare in Mourning was published. The author, Neil Milkins, is based in Wales and had researched the Abertilly murders. In order to complete his book, Milkins made checks to find out what happened to Harold Jones. 
What he found out was so astonishing that it's been the subject of various newspaper articles and it's been made into a few documentaries too. Jones was living in Fulham by 1947 and calling himself Harry Stevens. So West London, he'd served his time and started a new life with a new name. Yep, and he was married as well and he had a daughter. All very promising, eh? He'd put his past behind him, settled down. He stayed at an address in Heatherscombe Avenue, Fulham, until 1962, when he moved to a house at Aldensley Road in, you've guessed it, Hammersmith. Hammersmith is, what, two miles from Chiswick and Acton, where the two of the bodies were dumped. So that's about a ten-minute drive in the car. Yeah, I mean, at the very most, and in those days, the traffic was a lot lighter too. And wait for it, Aldensley Road is very close to where two of the victims also lived. So, did the house-to-house inquiries knock on Mr Jones, a.k.a. Mr Stevens' door? Hmm, unfortunately not. His road was just outside the area where the police made their house-to-house inquiries. Wow. I wonder what they would have gleaned. I wonder how plausible he would have been. And we will never know. I wonder what his neighbours would have said about him. Well, Jones also worked within the motor trade as a panel beater. Add to that the fact that the bodies were stored for a time before they were disposed of. It all seems to connect him, right? The dots are joining up. Living and working in this area for years would mean he knew the area well. Something the killer of the eight women would find useful when disposing of their bodies. So so what happened to him? Jones died in Hammersmith in 1971 from bone cancer. So he stuck around the area. If it was him, he'd stopped his urge to kill women, or at least suppressed it. Maybe a change in lifestyle, who knows? Yeah, maybe he just got it out of his system. The work of Neil Milkins was passed to a professor of criminology, a gentleman called David Wilson. Now he said, these women were sadistically murdered, and because of that sadism, which had a sexual overtone, they lost their lives. Wilson goes on to explain... Sadism doesn't dissipate over time. Sadism always finds some way of expressing itself in terms of the killer's life and lifestyle. So who knows what was going on behind closed doors. Wilson also feels that Jones had a fixation with the mouth. Now, as a child, teenager, it's known that his girlfriend was unhappy that he asked her to spit in his mouth I'm not quite sure how that came about, but anyway, this unusual request may have extended to the removal of the teeth and the removal of the the dentures, the false teeth, from some of the later murder victims. Okay, so all of this information has been passed on to the Metropolitan Police. Question is, had the detectives known about Jones, Steve Jones, in 1965, would he have been getting a six o'clock knock? Without a doubt, Simon. I mean, what, what you've just relayed there and what we've just gone through, anywhere that Jones had access to would have been turned upside down. Uh, within a few hours of shaking the tree, I think some fruit would have dropped into the evidential basket for sure. I mean, to be fair to him and any of the so-called suspects, the introduction of DNA would have sorted this case out without a doubt. It possibly still could if the key exhibits were still available. We may not have the DNA of the suspects, but they had family. Uh, Jones certainly did, and familial DNA can lead to the killer. And of course, 
I suppose at the very least get some closure for the relatives, the people who were left behind, the families of the eight women who were murdered. Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's, there's eight families there who don't understand what happened to, uh, to their relatives. Jack, it's a fascinating case, quite disturbing as well. But, you know, that's the name of the game in your business, I suppose, isn't it? Um, and again, a, a case that wasn't closed, and we can only really just postulate what might have been. Hey, it's been great talking to you, mate. We'll have to catch up again soon. Till the next time, stay lucky. Six O'Clock Knock is presented by Simon Ford and Jack Morell and produced by Paul Bradshaw and is available on every major listening app. Please help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and telling your friends to subscribe. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.